have come down to rescue the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians and to lead them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the country of the Canaanites. The book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 8. eastern portion of the Mediterranean Sea is sometimes described as the Levant. That's L-E-V-A-N-T, Levant. The exact geography defining its limits is debatable, but the term is certainly useful, especially when studying the ancient Near East. For the purposes of this podcast, I will use the word Levant to indicate the whole general region of the eastern Mediterranean, beginning at the shores of mainland Greece, continuing east along the southern coast of the Anatolian Peninsula and south from there to encompass western Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and Egypt. This is a generous definition of the term. Some definitions limit the Levant to just the eastern shoreline of the Mediterranean, essentially western Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. However, as we transition out of the history of the ancient Near East and into Greek history, it should become obvious that all of these regions are tied together culturally, historically, and genetically. Our first foray into the history of this region began with the last episode about Egypt, a land and a realm to which we shall return more than once. But for now, let us turn our eyes away from Egypt, to the north and to the east, to the fabled land of Canaan, referenced in the famous passage from the biblical book of Exodus with which I opened this episode. Canaan is a land that could easily disappoint a modern visitor, especially if he or she has read the scriptures, both Hebrew and Christian. In her excellent book, The Crusades, Zoe Oldenborg tells of the common disillusionment of medieval crusaders arriving for the first time in this land. How could their savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, have been born in such an arid wasteland? For many of us today, though, having seen modern Palestine on TV or elsewhere, when we read the Bible, We import those images into our minds and are prepared to think of the biblical personages moving against the background of a dry, dusty place. However, the pre-modern reader of the scriptures, living outside the land spoken of in its passages, would probably have imagined a land much more fertile, much more lush than the present reality. For so the land is described to Moses when the Lord comes and tells him to lead the people of Israel out of slavery. This should not, however, uh, be simply credited to false advertising. First, we should remember, as I mentioned in the episode about Sumer, that in ancient times this region of the world was not as desolate as it is now, Neolithic and Bronze Age humans not having felled so many trees of the once thick forest that carpeted much of the land. Nevertheless, there is probably still something to the idea that Canaan was never exactly a Garden of Eden, overgrown with green leafy trees and their branches laden down with brightly colored succulent fruit. Even when the Israelites first arrived, perhaps around the year 1200 BC, Canaan, though not a desert, 
was a land that dealt its benefits more sparingly than the rich farmlands around the Nile in Egypt or those near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Mesopotamia. The Israelites, though, and you must remember that they wrote the Bible, emerged from the wastelands of the Sinai Peninsula and the barren land of what we now call Jordan. They probably found Canaan a site for sore eyes, a land in which water ran down from mountain streams into rivers and lakes, and a variety of trees grew, and the land was at least receptive to farming. Also advantageous for the rough Israelites, hardened by a generation of sojourn in the desert, was the softness of its populace, the Canaanites, long urbanized and living docile in a land that had welcomed their comparatively sedentary life for thousands of years. Yes, thousands of years. Though we consider the arrival of the Israelites, biblically cited, to be an ancient event, they were truly newcomers to this area, where civilization had been known for millennia. The Canaanites, directly or indirectly, were themselves the inheritors of the Natufians, discussed in a previous episode, Neolithic pioneers in agriculture, already practicing rudimentary farming many thousands of years before the Israelites arrived. So Canaan, whatever its inherent agricultural properties, truly was a land of milk and honey, its difficult soil long ago tamed by the steady, patient work of Stone Age farmers generation after generation. Now, Natufian is a word applied to a collection of cultural traits found spread across time and space in the Levant's archaeological record. Most likely, multiple groups of early modern humans, distinct in terms of genetic and overall cultural heritage, exhibited these societal traits. As time passed, and as we have seen in Mesopotamia and in Egypt already as the Bronze Age arrived, the disparate cultures of the region would have experienced mergers, either through conquest or simple assimilation and adoption of each other's practices, a, dramatic, a genetic hom homogenization as well as a cultural one. The end result of this process in the Levant was the Canaanite culture. So, who were the Canaanites? Who were the people that the Israelites would eventually encounter? And what was the history of their origin? Natufian culture and the Natufian people, whoever they may have been, did not develop into Canaanite culture in uninterrupted fashion. Like many regions of the ancient world in the late Neolithic, Canaan experienced waves of immigration. The biblical Israelites were not the first to conquer this land and turn it to their own use. Sometime around 4,500 BC, the Gesulian culture appears in Canaan. The people of this culture were adept at coppersmithing, that is, the fashioning of tools, weapons, jewelry, and other items from copper. This was the beginning of the Chalcolithic, or Copper Age, in the Levant. In fact, the works produced in copper by these people are the finest in the area produced during this era. Now, as far as archaeologists can tell, this culture did not develop locally, but represents an influx of people from elsewhere, though that location is not known for certain. One theory suggests that they came from an area near or between the Zagros and Caucasus Mountains, a region associated with and not far from the origin of the Indo-Europeans, as discussed in episode 12. Presumably, the people of this newly arrived culture in the Levant merged one way or another with the Natufian populace, but that is just speculation. Perhaps this was conquest, perhaps it was slow immigration and population change. We can't be sure. 
Since they did not apparently possess writing among their cultural tools, we do not have any explicit accounts about their origins or the details of the lives of the people living in Canaan at this time. However, the earliest writings of the Egyptians and the Sumerians mention the people of this region. These two more powerful cultures, Mesopotamian and Egyptian, which straddled the Levant on the east and west, would spend thousands of years battling for control of this area, as it was the only viable overland route between the two regions, and this land continues to be a source of conflict today. The Sumerians refer to the inhabitants of this land as quote-unquote tent dwellers. The actual word that they used in writing was martu, which later developed into a word that we translate into English today as Amorite, a name familiar to Bible readers and used to describe one of the primary groups of Canaanites in Scripture. These Amorites are essentially the same people, in terms of genetics and culture, whom the migrant Israelites will meet when they enter the land sometime around 1200 BC, though many centuries will pass between this first identification of the Canaanites by the Sumerians and their encounter with Israel. Lacking any written accounts or records of a centralized government, which Canaan would not have until Saul claimed kingship over the twelve tribes of Israel sometime before 1000 BC, we have little other knowledge of the Canaanites besides what their neighbors and archaeology can tell us. As for their religion, comprehension of which Will Durant tells us is the key to understanding any people, they apparently worshipped a pantheon of gods similar to, if not identical with, that of the Phoenician culture, which we will discuss shortly. So I will save the study of Canaanite religion until we are closer to the end of this episode, and have covered the Phoenicians as well. But before moving on to the Phoenicians, we should make ourselves familiar with some of the geographic features of this land. After all, it is here that the Christian religion will be born during the long, protracted denouement of Israel. Jesus and his apostles will walk the mountain roads and cross the bodies of water that punctuate the map of Canaan. French crusaders will return 1,000 years later to pour their blood into its sand and into its women as well. And even today, Western politics are still entangled with this realm, which has been known at different times as Canaan, Israel, or Palestine. Let us begin this brief geographic study of Canaan in the north, where Canaan borders Lebanon. This realm to the north of Canaan is mentioned not infrequently in the Bible. The land there was as good as it was in Canaan, Climate change of the last several thousand years would bring about alternating wet and dry periods that would critically impact the fortunes of those who dwelt there and in Canaan. Most significant for the Canaanites when speaking of Lebanon would have been the two low mountain ranges that ran north and south, paralleling the shoreline. Here and all around grew the great cedar trees, which, according to biblical writers, King Solomon utilized to build his glorious temple in Jerusalem through negotiations with the king of Tyre, a Phoenician city. Here also, in that forest of cedar, Enkidu and Gilgamesh fought and killed the monster Humbaba. Now, one finger on the map, we may trace the route of the Jordan River, which has its origins in these mountains of Lebanon. The river flows resolutely north to south, parallel to the western Mediterranean shoreline of Canaan. It is not a mighty river. It does not compare to the Nile, the Tigris, or the Euphrates, during their fabled entrance into the Holy Land, the Israelites were able to cross the river on foot only with the help of the Lord, who stopped the flow of the river, according to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. But the crossing of this river would not have been as epic as the crossing of the Red Sea would have been. In many places, the distance between the two shores of the river is less than 100 feet, and the river was always fordable at multiple points. 
Some modern interpreters of the scriptures think that a landslide may have been enough to interrupt the moderate flow of this mediocre river to allow a crossing on foot for the Israelites. Now, the Jordan River discharges first into the Sea of Galilee, which is technically not a sea, but rather a lake, because it is a body of fresh water. It is a sizable lake, though, and even today continues to supply plenty of fish to eat and water to drink for the surrounding regions. Here, some of the apostles of Jesus worked as fishermen before going on to found the Christian religion, and Jesus was reputed to have performed more than one miracle on or near its shores. The River Jordan continues on southward from the Sea of Galilee, roughly 200 more kilometers, where it reaches its terminus, appropriately, in the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea truly is a sea, and in some respects it truly is dead. It is unique among the bodies of salt water on Earth for more than one reason. Due to a quirk of geography, the Dead Sea is located over 400 meters below sea level so the atmosphere on its shores is thicker than it is in most of the other locales in our history. Additionally, its waters are many times saltier than ocean water, thus the water is much denser than water found elsewhere. The high degree of salinity is what makes the Dead Sea unlivable for most plant and animal life. Only algae and bacteria can truly thrive in these waters. This is not to suggest that the water is so inimical to life that it cannot be touched. The Dead Sea is actually a well-visited tourist destination today. You can swim safely in its waters, though it is not easy. The water's density causes the average person to float so high that the swimming is more difficult. You can look on the web for interesting photos of people floating on the Dead Sea. These waters also, with their high salt content, are considered useful for a number of therapeutic treatments at spas littered around the shores of this unique body of water. Now, finally, before we turn our eyes to the coastlands, to the cities of Phoenicia, let us revisit, one more time, Jericho, that first among cities, originally situated in the Jordan Valley. Atop a hill known as Tel Es Sultan, over time, the city would migrate, would remain in the same general area as this hill. As I related in an earlier podcast, Jericho is the oldest known city in the world though archaeology may deliver another surprise any day and reveal a city even older. Here, some 11,000 years ago, there is already evidence of large groups of people, several hundred at least, working in cooperation to erect stone stone walls around their settlement. This puts the construction of Jericho not all that much later than people began the construction of Gobekli Tepe, as mentioned in a previous episode. Now, all throughout this region... From the southern reaches of the Anatolian Peninsula to the mountains and the coastal plains of Canaan, early modern humans were organizing themselves in large groups, while the rest of humanity still clung to Paleolithic lifestyles. As we have already learned, when people took to agriculture and sedentary life, it was not a move driven by desire to improve their life or to make bold technological or cultural leaps. People made these changes in their lifestyles because they had to, because the supply of big game was entirely exhausted and the available smaller game was not sufficient to meet the protein needs. So we can only speculate that for whatever reason. Local conditions in their region led the Natufians, and for other reasons, to begin experimenting with agriculture and the kind of large social cooperation that would have enabled them to build cities like Jericho and others in Canaan and in Lebanon to the north. What might those conditions have been? Was it that the large game ran out here first? Was it some sort of climate change, a combination of these and other factors? This region actually makes up a significant portion of what historians call the Fertile Crescent, a sort of boomerang-shaped stretch of land extending from southern Canaan 
northeastwards through Upper Mesopotamia, and then southerly again toward the Persian Gulf. Did the unusual fertility of the land encourage the early modern humans to transition to agriculture before anyone else? Or do we call it the Fertile Crescent merely because the humans here, lacking other resources, made the land fertile through necessity? We really only know dates and locations, which are the fundamental substratum for all historical study. Many times you hear complaints from reluctant students of history that it is all names, dates, and places. The who, the what, the where, the when. Of course, the truth is that all historians want more than just dates and places and names. The true gem in historical study is the why, the understanding of motives. But motives, causes, this human side of history are hard to come by. And when we study the most ancient history, such as that of Jericho, we are lucky if we get more than dates and locations. Names are usually out of the question, and motives, the understanding of why certain events happened, or why people did one thing or another, these things are always speculative. So depending on where you look, in textbooks, on television, or the internet, you may find a wide variety of explanations and theories about the people who built Jericho. Nevertheless, what we know is that it was built, and that our ancestors built it around 9000 BC. Now, Jericho was not inhabited continuously, as far as we can tell, for all of the 11,000 years that separate us from its founding. Archaeological digs show long periods of inhabitation punctuated by periods of abandonment. Its population changes, its declines, and its flourishings are all apparent in the archaeological record and tell a great story that lasts nearly 8,000 years before it enters the historical record in the pages of the Bible. That story, though, is for students of ancient Near Eastern history. We will have to leave it behind and only wonder at Jericho's endurance. We will remember it again in a future episode when the Israelites wander out of the desert and besiege this ancient city. For now, let's move on to Phoenicia. When we speak of the Phoenicians, we speak of a people who were culturally and probably genetically similar to the other people of Canaan. They appear as a distinct culture in the historical record of the Levant sometime around the year 3000 BC. A few centuries after Sumer and Egypt have risen to power and straddled Canaan on east and west. The Phoenicians are a Semitic people and they speak a Semitic language like the rest of the Canaanites and also like the people living in Mesopotamia to the east. They would found many colonies throughout the Mediterranean over the centuries, but their homeland was always a strip of coastland and islands to the north of Canaan proper, mostly in present-day Lebanon. The Phoenicians are remembered as seafarers and as merchants, but those trades would have only occupied a small portion of their total population, which must, like every other culture after the passing of the Neolithic, must have consisted mostly of farmers or fishermen, providing sustenance to those who did things besides produce food but it is their ascendancy on the ocean waves for which they are primarily remembered. It can certainly be said that the West owes a great deal to the Phoenicians. Long before the Greeks were plying the waves and trading with the East on their own, the Phoenicians were bringing trade and news to both East and West. Around Levant, and later the whole Mediterranean, they would also spread their alphabet, which I will discuss later in this episode, and incidentally further literacy among widespread peoples. The Greeks and others would adapt this alphabet and modify it to their local languages. 
The alphabet that I use now to write this podcast is really nothing more than a descendant of the original Phoenician writing system. Let us begin, though, with the marine activities of the Phoenicians. From their coastal cities in the Levant, they explored the entire Mediterranean in ships which improved upon an originally simple Egyptian design. They did not do so immediately, and truthfully, the, the Phoenicians are a bit of an anachronistic addition to this episode. So far, I have discussed cultures such as the Sumerian and the ancient Egyptian, mostly in the context of the year 3000 BC and the following millennium. The Phoenicians would not begin their heyday until closer to the end of the Bronze Age, around 1200 BC. Nevertheless, they are suitable for discussion now because they are an offshoot of Canaanite culture and because they help us to see how the ancient world was not a place littered with isolated human settlements living in ignorance of one another, but it was really already a global village, interconnected not just by the sea lanes they traveled, but also by overland routes, like that which ran from Egypt to Mesopotamia through Canaan itself. Truly, this was a land through which the ancient world was vitally connected. The Phoenicians sought far and wide to expand their trade networks. They actually went beyond the Straits of Gibraltar and traveled to Bronze Age Britain, and to the Atlantic coast of North Africa. There are even hints that they may have traveled around the Horn of Africa, or even reached the New World thousands of years before Columbus. Wherever they went, they did not go for the pure pleasure of exploration. Travel was a part of business for the Phoenicians, and they were constantly in search of new markets. Where there were no sufficiently advanced civilizations with which to trade, they established settlements from which they could trade with the surrounding clans and tribes of less sophisticated people. Many of these ancient settlements still exist today. The Spanish city of Cadiz, for example, was founded by the Phoenicians almost 3,000 years ago as a trade outpost on the Iberian Peninsula. Such a journey from Phoenicia to Spain would have been particularly arduous in that day and age. The custom and habit of sailors during this age of sailing was to travel only short distances by sea during the day. Normally, a ship's crew passed the night on land, meaning that they had to set out in the morning to travel and would find a place to beach their ships before nightfall. Propulsion was generally achieved by rowing oars, as the art of sailing was known but was still quite primitive in this period. This is one of the reasons that it is hard to believe that ancient Europeans or Africans discovered the New World. The ships which Columbus and others used to cross the Atlantic were technologically much more advanced than the ships used by sailors in the ancient world, which were sturdy but not designed for long voyages out of sight of land. So the journey to Spain from Phoenicia would have been long indeed, with many stops and few ventures across open seas, not during the Phoenician heyday anyway, prior to the rise of the Persian Empire. I mentioned the Phoenicians traveling as far as the British Isles. One reason for going so far away was the tin that could be acquired on those islands. In fact, it was trade routes like those provided by the Phoenicians that made the Bronze Age possible. Metallurgical knowledge was important, yes, but useless without the proper supplies. And bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, along with other metals sometimes, as described in an earlier episode. However, as it turns out, copper and tin ores are rarely found in close proximity. So the Bronze Age could not have happened without the existence of extensive trade networks, which allowed the passage of copper and tin ores to locations where they could be melted in furnaces and turned into a new alloy, bringing the metals together just as the trade networks brought the whole world together. Now, the Phoenicians had to do more than simply travel the new routes that they discovered on the high seas. They also had to protect these passages. So Phoenician merchants, and really all merchants in this era, had to be more than just businessmen. 
They were a combination of salesmen, soldiers, sailors, and even pirates. There were no international laws protecting their lives, nor were there commercial laws defending their goods. Merchants like the Phoenicians traveled with armed guards and were themselves often capable warriors, capable certainly of commanding their own troops in battle. And just as there were no laws protecting Phoenicians or their goods, there was no law protecting anyone from the Phoenicians. Yes, Phoenician merchants, just like all traders on land as well, were just as likely to conduct business with you as they were to rob you or even kill you. It is a dog-eat-dog world, they say, and this was even more true thousands of years ago, when there was no civilizing presence on the commercial routes of the world. Far from any overseeing authority, two groups of people encountering each other on the road or on the sea lanes would eye each other warily for sure, looking to see which way their advantage lay, trade, attack, or flee. And this was likely not a a matter that burdened a man of that age with any moral weight, Survivors, all of us in this world, the average traveler back then would have just seen the issue as simply one of common sense and need. In a world of limited resources and most humans living at or near subsistence, it was simply a matter of course that the strong would prey on the weak, especially far away from the cities, far away from civilization. On the open road or at sea, men reverted to their straightforward Paleolithic outlook. The strong survive. You might actually be shocked when you read the Iliad or the Odyssey, for example, and see how the Greek warriors outside Troy or on their passages home speak so easily of transitioning from performing military deeds, with which we are familiar and which we can see much honor, and transitioning to speaking of the towns that they raided, the cattle that they stole, or the women that they captured. But these warriors were like all others, like all other people, really. The Phoenician sailors sailors and merchants were no different. And when we look back on any such immoral deeds of our ancestors, before we recoil in shock, we might ask ourselves how much of our own personal morality, our ability to refrain refrain from committing evil, how much of it is due to fear of legal penalty, and how much is due to actual conviction, how much of it is due to being raised in a civilization, a society based on city life, how much different would we be, really, than our opportunistic ancestors, were it not for the influence of thousands of years of our Western traditions. Ruins of Phoenician colonies are found spread across the Mediterranean basin and beyond. Indeed, Carthage, capital of that great empire that was the nemesis of Republican Rome, was originally a Phoenician colony before Phoenicia declined and Carthage rose to fill the power vacuum in the western Mediterranean. However, the traditional base of power for the Phoenicians was always in the cities strung along the northern Levant, such as Tyre, Acre, Sidon, and Byblos. Tyre and Sidon are mentioned frequently in the Bible. The Phoenician city of Tyre is perhaps most famous for having once been a fortified Phoenician island off the coast of Canaan. Its islandhood came to an end in 332 BC when Alexander the Great, about whom we will hear much more in the coming series on ancient Greek history, when Alexander built a causeway that reached from the mainland shore to the island before assaulting and breaching its walls. This conqueror left the causeway in place, and the Isle of Tyre has ever since been simply a small peninsula. 
Acre is an originally Phoenician city perhaps best remembered for being a crusader stronghold during the Middle Ages, staying in French hands even after the fall of Jerusalem in 1187. Finally, the city of Byblos is known for being nearly as old as Jericho, Originally a Mesolithic fishing village founded sometime after 9000 BC, the city of Byblos experienced many different ruling cultures in its long history, including those period of strong Egyptian influence and control. By around 1200 BC, though, archaeological findings show that the culture was strongly Phoenician. These same ruins from that time period also reveal something new and interesting in the history of Phoenicia and the history of man. I speak of the Phoenician alphabet. Now, the utility of an alphabet may seem obvious to the present-day listener. However, our familiarity with an alphabet should not blind us to the cleverness of its invention. The Phoenician alphabet was a huge leap forward in literacy and human communication. Consider how early modern humans, living for the first time in large settlements and cities, and needing some sort of graphic symbolism to facilitate communication and record-keeping, how would they approach the problem of turning the sounds that came out of their mouths when they spoke? into something written. It would be perfectly natural and intuitive to turn each spoken word into its own symbol. This initial idea would only break down when the lexicon of your language became too large. Now, a lexicon is the total number of words in a particular language or in the vocabulary of a specific person. Just consider that the modern English language has over 100,000 words in it, and that the speaker of just average intelligence uses about 20,000 of them on a regular basis. Furthermore, turning sentences into a series of symbols can become more problematic when you have things like verb conjugation and the declension of nouns and adjectives in languages such as Latin. The required symbols and pictures would become so numerous that it would, be, it would require specialists, such as an Egyptian scribe, for example, to communicate effectively with them, someone who spent an entire lifetime studying and preserving this knowledge. Now, however, when the Phoenicians spread around the Mediterranean this incredibly advantageous form of written communication, literacy came within the reach of the average man. By reducing the sounds, rather than the entire words in their language to symbols, the Phoenicians limited the number of required symbols to just 22 letters. These 22 letters or characters were easily within the reach of the average man to learn and master. Think of the leap forward this represented. All of the thousands of words in a language could now be recreated with just 22 letters. Being able to recreate the 100,000 or more words in the English language with just our 26 letters is really marvelous when you think about it, and we owe this idea to the Phoenicians who proliferated this innovation. Indeed, their system would spread around the Mediterranean and undergo many adaptations to local needs and uses, but you can trace a direct line from their alphabet to the one used today to speak English or any other European language. Now, the Phoenicians did not actually invent the very first al alphabet. They merely popularized their own, which was a descendant of early, earlier Canaanite alphabets that may or may not have developed out of Egyptian hieroglyphs over the course of many centuries. And their alphabet did not simply catch on like fire around the world when they began to spread it around sometime after 1200 BC. You have to remember, by then, Mesopotamians had been using cuneiform, and Egyptians had been using hieroglyphs for almost 2,000 years, these writing systems would continue to be dominant in their respective regions for over a thousand years more until they disappeared for different reasons during the Roman era. This might seem odd to us today, this tardiness in the spread of the alphabet, when new and useful innovations now proliferate around the globe, global culture quickly, just as the internet and the cell phone and social media spread around the world in a matter of years.
But when we speak of change in the ancient world, we are almost always speaking of such slow change, like a steady rainfall seeping into the soil and slowly saturating it. Earlier in the episode, while discussing the Canaanites, I promised a review of their religion. In keeping with Will Durant's idea that understanding a man's religion is key to understanding the man himself. This adage may seem outdated to a listener today. Many people believe that they live blissfully in ignorance of any religious instruction or influence. I hope to show someday, whenever I get to the eighth series of this podcast, which will study our contemporary times, that modern men and women, particularly those that do not believe themselves religious, do indeed adhere to a sort of pseudo-religion, a creed or a set of creeds that influence and even control their thoughts, words, and actions. But that is a far-off time. God willing, I will live to speak on the matter. In the meantime, let's take a look at the gods of the Canaanites and the Phoenicians. As it often is in the study of ancient history, our sources for this topic are mostly polemical, Much of what we know or think we know about the Canaanite religion and its gods is based on remarks made in the Old Testament of the Bible and in the writings of the ancient Greeks and Romans. Both both the Hebrews and the Romans in particular were at odds with this culture, the Hebrews against the Canaanites in their land and the Romans against the Carthaginians, who were descendants of the Phoenicians, as described earlier. Nevertheless, despite such biased primary sources, it is possible thanks in part to archaeology, to gather some idea about the pantheon of the Canaanite gods and their descendant cultures as well. Our information is limited primarily to the names of the gods and their primary attributes, or the realm of human life over which they were reputed to have influence. Let us begin with El. That's E-L-L. He was the high god of the Canaanites, as Anu was for the Sumerians. From him it was recognized that the other gods were descended, even those that came to occupy positions of higher importance in later manifestations of local religions. Students of the Bible, those who study it in its original languages, may find the name of this God familiar. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, God is often named El, or Elohim, which is just a pluralization of El. The name in Canaanite simply means God. One of the sons of El was named Baal, that's B-A-A-L, Baal. His name means Lord, and actually many gods of the Canaanites had their name prefaced with the word Baal to indicate that they were lords as well. And the word Baal was used in Canaanite language and in modern Hebrew to indicate people of high honor or respect, just as the word Lord was often used in English to distinguish a man of great honor. Consider how English barristers are often depicted calling the courtroom judge, my lord. But the Baal that we are speaking of was apparently in many areas a sort of high god himself, perhaps superseding his father El in the same way that Marduk of the Mesopotamians or Zeus of the Greeks attained greater importance than the older gods who had preceded them. There is also Asherah, and that is A-S-H-E-R-A-H, Asherah. She was the wife of El the high god. In the Old Testament, the biblical writers make many references in scolding their fellow countrymen to the number of Asherahs found in the land, apparently a reference to the Israelites keeping idols of this or other goddesses in their homes or shrines. Astarte, 
A-S-T-A-R-T-E, Astarte, was essentially the Canaanite version of Inanna, the Sumerian goddess of fertility. She was also known as Ishtar in Mesopotamia later, and she is frequently referenced in the Bible as being one among the many idols that the Israelites tolerated in defiance of the commandments, holding on, apparently, to the local religions of the Canaanites. More familiar and more infamous for the modern listener may be the names of the Canaanite gods Moloch and Chemosh. Chemosh was the name of the god of war. Moloch might have been the god of fire for the Canaanites. Both are mentioned as well in the Bible. But it is the latter god, Moloch, who draws most attention in this pantheon. This is so because the form of worship which he is reputed to have required from his adherents and supplicants. Though other gods may have received the same gruesome offering at times, Moloch is remembered in particular for the rite of child sacrifice. This, more than anything, makes the Canaanite religion stand out in the history of religions. As the modern age dawned and the Bible slowly became just another ancient text to be interpreted, rather than a set of laws to be obeyed, there was some doubt among scholars as to whether or not this attribute of Canaanite religion was a reality or a calumny. The Romans wrote disparagingly of the Carthaginians in this practice, so did the Greeks, actually. But both cultures had sparred with the Carthaginians, and the Romans especially hated these people. After three wars over the course of more than a century, the Romans finally defeated the Carthaginians resoundingly. The final act in this conflict was the Roman leveling of the Carthaginian capital city, and then they salted its ruins. This was in 146 BC. The Israelites also despised the Canaanites and imputed this practice of child sacrifice to their religious rites. The story in Genesis, which depicts Abraham ready to carry out an order from the Lord to sacrifice his only son, only to be stopped at the last second by the same God, seems like some sort of backhanded reproach against the surrounding Canaanite culture, perhaps a way of distinguishing Hebrew from Canaanite. It seemed likely to modern interpreters that this attribute of Canaanite religion was then possibly a fabrication invented by their cultural enemies. The Canaanites, the Phoenicians, and the Carthaginians left no documentation either defending or denying the practice, but then much literature from this period has been lost forever, and the Romans certainly destroyed every trace of Carthaginian culture after conquering their homeland. However, there is growing consensus today, given new archaeological discoveries, that the practice of child sacrifice was real. It adds to the grimness of this confirmation when one, one remembers that Moloch was the god of fire and that the children appear to have been offered up to him in holocausts, much as animals were so offered in many other religions. Also, the children's sacrifice were often infants, but ranged in age, and it was known that street children were bought by wealthy Carthaginians in order to perform such sacrifices to their gods. We can only speculate on why children were sacrificed. As I said before in this episode, Discovering motives is always hard in the study of history. When we consider animal sacrifice, which will be discussed in more detail during an episode about the Israelites, we know that people offered animals up to their gods for a variety of reasons, everything from atonement for sin, requests for love or financial gain, thanksgiving for well-being or for victory in war. But it is also apparent that most of these sacrifices involved a festival atmosphere. Indeed, in the Old Testament passages on animal sacrifice, the Lord frequently orders his followers, after completing the sacrifice, to make merry before him, that is, to eat the flesh of the sacrificed animal and to celebrate in general. Perhaps this is why it is so difficult to believe in the reality of child sacrifice among our ancestors. Not only is the act abhorrent to imagine, 
much more so than the violence, racism, oppression of women, or other social attitudes that distinguish us today from our ancestors. But child sacrifice simply makes less sense in many ways for our minds. It is easy to imagine that such sacrifices might have served as forms of appeasement or placation of angry gods, but it is hard to imagine any celebratory component to such a sacrifice. Perhaps there wasn't. Perhaps children were thrown into the fires of sacrifice purely to avert disaster, as is related of the Carthaginians before their defeat at the hands of the Romans, or to seek personal gain in life. It is gruesome to imagine these rites, and it is harder to forgive them than the other idiosyncrasies of our ancestors. Possibly the real truth behind child sacrifice, its purpose, its meaning, lies deep in our human past, but it could not be buried too deep in our history. It seems unlikely that our Paleolithic ancestors, with their already anemic population growth, could have survived the intentional and routine killing of their own offspring. Did this practice then have its origin in overpopulation in the earliest cities, when suddenly a surplus of humans was a tenable idea? Was it a way to deal with the birth of children with significant defects, a way of reutilizing postnatal abortion for a religious purpose? We know that it was a common practice for people in many ancient cultures, the Romans, for example, to rid themselves of unwanted children through the practice of exposure. This involves simply leaving a recently born child somewhere out in the wilderness for the elements or wildlife or for both to dispose of. Among the Canaanites or their cultural ancestors, did child sacrifice develop out of a desire to apply some sort of religious meaning to this practice? We may never know the full meaning of this practice, and it limits us in our ability to follow the direction given us by Will Durant to understand ancient man through his religion. And this is not the last time that this will happen, that we will leave behind a culture without coming to understand it completely. The study of history is the study of ruins. We pick up the fragments of stone buildings and brittle, desiccated scrolls. We handle them gently, and we try to put the pieces back together and make some sense out of them, usually in vain. In the next episode, I will return to the study of Egypt and look at the Old Kingdom dynasties, their incredible pharaohs and their even more incredible accomplishments. In the meantime, I hope that you take an opportunity to visit the website for this podcast, western-traditions.org. That is western-traditions.org. Look around the site, and if you like the podcast, consider supporting it through a contribution via PayPal or through Patreon. And I would also like to take this moment to thank my very first contributor and a faithful listener, Dr. Richard Charlebois of Virginia. Let me take a moment to explain why I hope that more of you don't join Dr. Charlebois in supporting the podcast. You certainly have a right to know what you are supporting if you choose to be so generous. At present, I am producing this podcast with just my iPhone. I would like to improve the sound and other effects with some superior recording equipment. Furthermore, the website costs money to develop. Finally, I do this work out of love, but it is quite a bit of work to produce just one episode. I have written and published some fiction in my life, and I tend to think of this work in terms of writing a short story. A typical episode is somewhere between six and 9,000 words so far. This episode is just over 7,000 words of writing. That is about the length of a longish short story that you might publish in an online magazine. 
Researching, writing, and editing so many words often takes weeks of labor. Financial support for the podcast would enable me to improve the quality of the episodes and spend more time on research and production. Anyway, I hope that you've enjoyed the series like so far and, like me, are looking forward to the next episode. Until the next time, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.